powerful Word of God can change lives, heal broken hearts, and show me my sin. Here's our prayer. Lord Jesus, today, speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and look at him and say, How you look marvelous. Boy, you're saying that with such enthusiasm is scaring me up here. You got a new one? Okay. Turn to your neighbors and it's kind of boring, but say hi. Glad you're here. So go ahead. Now add to that. Turn to your neighbor and say, and I love you. I'm glad you're here and I love you. That's two, that's two great ones. On the back table are two handouts that Mark emailed us ahead of time. I mentioned it to you. If you haven't picked them up, today would be a great day to pick them up. It'll stay with you. Uh, there's a, a front and back of two pages. One deals with the topic of sin. One, God's uh, grace versus law. And then the other one are just questions over the first nine chapters, I believe it is, of Romans. And so you say, well, there's more than nine chapters. Well, you'll see here in just a minute why it's just through nine chapters. Okay? However, we did cover um, through 11 this morning in Sunday school and even got into Isaiah and, and Jeremiah and Zechariah and Psalms. And Would you welcome Mark Barrier to come speak to us? Amen. When my wife's uh, Paula's dad uh, was in old age, he cared for his wife for 14 years, and uh, was a, a an example to all our family. Uh, she had had devastating strokes, and when he started, he was five foot ten. But because of all the lifting, uh, when she finally died, uh, we were all with her, and uh, he was down to five foot two. His back had just kind of collapsed. And then he fell and broke his hip, and five weeks later, after that one was healed, he fell and broke the other hip. Paula's dad used to say, Golden years. Bah! <laughs> I understand. <laughs> when you get to a certain age, you know something's going to happen. And uh, ultimately, we're all going to die. And uh, according to the Scripture, when you die, you really are moved into eternal life. And that's the hope of the Christian. The book of Romans that I talked about mainly uh, in our morning session, <clears throat> I mentioned uh, Psalm 110. Uh, Psalm 110 is six verses long, and it's quoted 32 times in the New Testament. And one of those quotations is by Jesus. In the last week of his earthly life, 
The Pharisees, the scribes, all the religious leaders kept trying to trick him and trap him in his words. And he just brilliantly answered every question they brought him and turned it back on them. And then finally, he asked the question to end all questions. In Matthew 22, Jesus said to the Pharisees, the scribes, all the religious leaders, whose son is the Messiah? And they say, why, he's the son of David. And Jesus said, oh, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, called him Lord? And he quoted Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, Adonai, the human figure of God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. How can he be the son of David and David's Lord? And none of them could answer him. And that was the last question in the Gospel of Matthew. Now what we've got to realize, and this is what I ended up with back there today, that Jesus is before and after. That Jesus is Alpha and Omega. And that John the Baptist, a true prophet, got it right when he said, the one who comes after me is really before me because he was before me. There is never a time when Jesus was not. He was always there with God, and he was the one through whom God created the universe. And that's what Paul starts out with in this book, in his salutation. At the opening few verses, he says, Son of David according to the flesh, Son of God according to the Spirit. And it's because of Jesus that the book of Romans is written. And I've got three points this morning, and they're very easy to remember because they're, they kind of capture the book of Romans. The sin of man, but the grace of God. Therefore, the Christian life. The sin of man, he starts out in verse 18 of the first chapter, talking about human sin. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed, present tense, against the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth in their wickedness. Now think about that. Everybody knows the truth. I said this back there. The Holy Spirit's job is to teach everybody in the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. And we all know that. We knew that before we became Christians. I remember that before I was 20 years old and I became a believer and follower of Jesus when I was 20 years old. And I, I knew it was true. I knew it before I believed it. It's funny how you can know something and not believe it. But I knew it was true. And when Paul says here that the wrath of God is being revealed, he's talking about somehow in human sin, God's wrath is expressed. Read down a little farther. 
Look at verse 24. He says, God gave them over in the sin of their flesh. And they dishonored their bodies with one another. This is our culture, folks. People dishonoring their bodies. The uh, designers of clothing. Uh, Most of them are uh, either homosexual or just immoral. And uh, they're the ones who set the designs for people. In biblical times, women dressed to conceal the body and highlight the face, but today it's the body being revealed. You know, I, I hate to say this, but Victoria has no secret, okay? <laughs> I'm sick of it. My wife will tell you that when that comes on TV, click another channel. And you hope it's not on the other channel. It's just too much of it. And we don't need that. You know, God gave people up in the sin that they're committing. God is a gentleman. He will never force anyone to come out of something that you don't want to come out of. One of the biggest problems in the American church is the same sin that plagues the rest of our culture. You know, we've taken God out of the schools, so now murderers go to school. It's ridiculous. Why do they think that the Ten Commandments is going to cause a problem for some kid? But they've made it illegal to keep that before children in the school. might hurt one of the little darlings, you know. You shall not commit adultery. That's the main one that Paul deals with here in the first chapter. He gave them up in that adulterous, sinful relationship. That's verse 24. Now look at verse 26. He gave them over to... Now this indicates that they weren't already in this. It's just getting worse. And you read verse 26 and 27... And it's obvious he's talking about homosexual behavior. You know, it's a big thing now in homosexual uh, pornography is little children. So many children taken by from their parents and forced to do things that the little children certainly know wrong and the people who are in charge of it know it's wrong. Where we lived in uh, Dallas, there was a couple right around the corner that had captured some children and were taking pictures and putting it on the Internet and running videos on the Internet of child pornography. Uh, Same sex, different sex, didn't matter. Everything. There's no limits today. And the trouble with the Internet is you can find anything you want there. There's, you know, I love the Internet because I can go and find, I'm a philologist. That means I love words. And I go and find all kinds of words and their meanings uh, and the history of those words and so on. But there's also other stuff there that uh, is a $12 billion industry in this country. Imagine. And sometimes you don't even look for it. It just pops up. Well, Paul makes it clear, and so did God throughout the Scripture, 
that homosexual behavior is the sin, not homosexual orientation. That's no more sin than heterosexual orientation. I've always been heterosexually oriented. I thank God for that. Boys like the ladies. Always have. I'm 74 years old, and I always think, you know, my juices are drying up and I'm getting old, but I still admire the flowers. I just don't pick them anymore. You know, my wife would hammer me. (laughs) We've been friends for 51 years and married for 49. Uh, Both of us have been faithful to our marriage. But it's not that there's no struggles. It's a commitment. And uh, our love is better now than it ever has been. And I think, I think just being together knocks the rough edges off your personality. But notice when Paul talks about homosexual behavior, he's talking about people who turn from what's natural to what's unnatural. Now, I don't know if I can be arrested for talking about homosexual behavior, but I know that there was a, a preacher in Canada who was arrested after church for preaching against homosexual behavior. I would never preach against homosexual people, but it's the behavior God's concerned about. Go back up to verse 18 and 19 and 20 and look again. He says, God's wrath is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of people. God doesn't put His wrath on individuals. He puts His wrath on sin. That's the way it's always been. And then verse 28 Therefore, God gave them over to, King James says, a reprobate mind. Reprobate. That means you've gone through two trials. You've been found guilty. It's the same word that's used when somebody flunks a test in Greek culture. It means the person has become worthless. The mind is worthless. There are people who are actually believing now that the very things that we're talking about here, sexual immorality, homosexual behavior, are good. Our culture is teaching us it's okay. But God goes the other direction with it very clearly. Please don't think it's okay. Just because people around you think it's okay... That's like letting the television or or, uh, our culture determine our values. That's crazy. You know, I've worked with many homosexual people. We've had homosexual students at Dallas Christian College, and we try to help them. But we don't try to help them accept themselves as they are. We try to show them that there's another way that's a better way. And God won't give them up in that behavior if they don't do the behavior. It's just like a heterosexual male. If a man is faithful to his wife, if a man is committed and stays celibate until marriage, he has not sinned. But if people... Uh, In our culture, you just see the opposite. 
There are more couples living together, more babies born out of wedlock today than ever before in American history. Well, Jesus met people like that too. And he helped them. The way you overcome that kind of sin is by conversion, being changed. Chapter 1 in Genesis, in uh, the book of Romans, basically teaches that the Gentiles are without hope apart from Jesus. And the farther you go into this book, the more hopeless it seems to become. I'm glad Paul didn't stop writing after verse 20 of, of chapter, 30, uh, chapter 3, because 3.20 is the end where he says that it's impossible to please God by works. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles break their conscience. Jews break the law. You imagine trying to live by 611 regulations? Imagine making a list of 611 rules. That's what the Old Testament holds. The Ten Commandments are just ten of them. But there are 611 rules. That's what the word Torah means. The, the, the Hebrew words or Hebrew letters in Torah spell out 611. And that's how many regulations there were. Imagine 365 negative regulations and all the rest of them are positive. But imagine trying to live by something like that. What Jesus did when he came was to change and fulfill all that and wrap it up in himself. And if we commit to him, we don't need to worry about fulfilling all the regulations. By faith, Paul says, we fulfill law. But works can never do it. I don't care how good you are, how hard you try, works can never do it. Works can never save you. It takes a relationship with Jesus. It takes faith. And this is what Paul is going to talk about starting in Romans 3, verse 21. Take a look at that passage. This is one of my favorite sections in Romans. Chapter 3, verse... See, he has summed up in the verses before all the sins that people are involved with. Starting in verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who continually seeks God. All have turned away. Together they become worthless. There's no one who practices good, not even one. Their thrones are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. What was that movie uh, recently with... Uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, you, you probably hope nobody saw it, but I heard that the F word was used in that movie over 400 times. What was it? Wolf of Wall Street, that's it. You, you saw it? No, I just, <laughs> just kidding, Harold. I know better than that. <clears throat> But their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And look at the one before that where he says, uh, 
or right after that, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. In other words, they, they harm other people. Ruin and misery mark their ways. I had a young man whose name, like mine, was Mark uh, as a student. And he told me that he, his mom had been married seven times to five different men. He had eight half-brothers and sisters, and not one a whole brother and sister. And his life was just devastated. He was a student at Dallas Christian College, and I think that finally redeemed him. I think God got a hold of him there. But he and his wife struggled and struggled and struggled to overcome that kind of a background. When it says ruin and misery are in their paths, parents don't know what they do to kids. It's a devastating world. And if we follow our culture, the same will happen to us. Ruin and misery mark their ways, the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Look at our culture. Here we are, maybe 60 or 70 or 80 people in this room. And how many people in the Tulsa area don't even go to church? About 10 years ago, I heard statistics that 93 million people in this country go to church every Sunday. And that was about 10 years ago. But that's still less than, that's about a fourth of our population. And I doubt if there's that many now. You know churches are dying all over the country. Are you aware that Christianity is exploding with growth around the world? I got a book from Gordon Conwell University's intercultural department. It came out in January 2011, and they said 80,000 people per hour are becoming Christians in the world. It's the fastest growth of the church in the history of the world. And right in the midst of it, persecution. They say more martyrs, more Christians will die for their faith in this century than in the preceding 20 centuries. You've been reading about ISIS. You know what they do to Christians. They take little children and crucify them and then cut their heads off. And they don't use a... They do this to saw their heads off. It's unbelievable. The cruelty. And it's a religion. A religion. It teaches... uh, You can tell a lot about religion, by the way, by how they treat their women. Now, women are property to be owned in Islam. Islam means submission, and the woman must learn submission, complete submission to the husband. The husband can do anything he wants with his wife, and they do, and with their children. Uh, Muhammad was a, uh, an incredible liar. Now, I could get in... Uh, PC trouble, talking about Muhammad. Uh, you saw what happened in uh, in Garland, I believe it was, where two guys with automatic weapons were taken out by one cop with a pistol. I thought that was hilarious. And then uh, the leaders of ISIS, you know, claimed uh, 
that that was their responsibility. I wouldn't claim a responsibility for a total failure like that, but that's the way it is. We're living in a culture where we're surrounded by people who hate us. And not just in this culture, but people around the world hate us. And yet Christianity is exploding with growth. Almost two million people a day becoming Christian because of the tremendous need we have because our whole body is involved in evil. I go back to uh, Ephesians 2 where he describes the way we walked under Satan's authority. And this is where we were until God got a hold of us. He has a hold of us. Look at verse 21. But now, a righteousness from God... apart from law, has been made known a righteousness that is by faith. And notice what he says. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God and are being justified freely. Did you see that? All have sinned and are falling short and are being justified freely. All, he said. In other words, anybody who comes to Jesus will be justified. In fact, from God's perspective, the whole human race has been forgiven if people will just accept that. This this is an incredible teaching. All have sinned. All have fallen short. All are being justified. In other words, when you were sinners, before you knew Jesus... Your justification was already written. You just had to believe it. That's all it takes. And there's nothing you can do to save yourself. God did it all. You see that right here? All have sinned. All are falling short, are being justified. That's going on at the same time. While we fall short, we're still being justified. What's that mean? That means if I commit a sin get run over by a Mack truck before I have a chance to repent, I'm still saved. It's not about my works. It's about Jesus and His work. And what He did on the cross for us is absolutely astounding. I want to go over to chapter 6. The logic of the book is impeccable. When a person believes in Jesus, what's the next step? You're sorry for your sin. And you show up to get baptized. Peter is so great on on baptism. 1 Peter 3, he says, it's the answer of a good conscience, baptism is. 
If you want your conscience to be clean, be baptized. Peter says it was just like Noah and his family passing through the water. He says in the same figure, baptism now saves us, not by a washing away of the filth of the flesh, but by the answer of a good conscience. I asked, uh, I was talking about this, and I said answer in the first century was a forensic term, a term used in court that means to show up to answer charges. And baptism, Peter is saying, is showing up to answer the charge that you're a sinner. And a judge out in the audience, Nathan Hecht, who's the, uh, the Supreme Court leader this year, raised his hand, and he said, answer still is a technical term for showing up in court to answer charges. I did not know it was also contemporary, but I knew it was in Greek law and Hebrew law. So baptism is when you show up in court before God and admit that you're a sinner. And as they said about John the Baptist, they came out confessing their sins and being baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And that's the way Peter talks about it on Pentecost. And in chapter 6, how do we get into Christ? According to the Scripture, you believe into Christ. And in chapter 6, you are baptized into Christ. Look what he says. Don't you know, this is verse 3, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. When you're baptized, you, you are in Christ and you are put there and buried with him and raised with him. We experience the death, burial, and resurrection by our faith in baptism, by our faith in Christ. And then chapter 7 and 8, I'll talk about this one day this week, but chapter 7, starting in verse 14, Paul makes it clear that he can't live the Christian life. And one thing that I've learned over the years is I can't either. It's like a frog in a well trying to hop up. He hops up one step and falls back two. Have you felt like that? Have you felt like you don't understand your own actions? You have right and wrong choice and you choose wrong? Why do we do that? We Christians, if you're not, the, the scripture indicates here that if you're not struggling against sin, you're not a Christian. It is a war, and it's flesh versus spirit. One of my favorite poems, flesh versus spirit. The Apostle Paul in uh, Galatians 5.17 says, The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh. And one of my favorite poems is, Roses are red, violets are blue, I'm schizophrenic, and so am I. You know, there's two people in, in all of us. And if we live by the flesh, and if, you, and if you study chapter 7, 
from verse 14 on, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit. Here's a Christian trying to live the Christian life on his own. And he can't do it. And Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And then he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ has delivered us. And chapter 8 says, I can. I can live the Christian life. Why? Because the Holy Spirit gives me the power through His grace to submit to the Holy Spirit and to live the Christian life. This is what God wants of us. He wants us. You know, the Holy Spirit comes in when you're baptized, when you believe. The Holy Spirit comes in like a baby. He doesn't come in with an arm or a leg, but He comes in as a person. And you have to, when I was 20 years old and I became a Christian, I had to stop feeding the old fleshly self and start feeding the baby. As long as you feed the baby, as long as you feed the Holy Spirit, he will grow. And the Apostle Paul indicates that the outer man is wasting away, but the inner man is being renewed day by day according to the image of the Creator. See, this is what God does for us. I'm going to quit here in just a second, but I just want to refer to a couple verses. There's a great passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul talks about Moses and you can read about it in uh, Exodus 34 Moses comes down from the mountain and he doesn't know that his face is blinding white he's been face to face with God and his he's transformed and he comes down the mountain and the people run from him and finally, he calls the leaders of Israel up to him, and he tells them what God had told him. And then you read the passage in the Old Testament. It sounds like he's veiling his face so the people won't be afraid of him. But Paul tells us he, he veiled his face so they couldn't see the glory on his face fading away. But listen to this. Paul says, we're not like that. Our faces the glory on our faces is getting brighter and brighter and brighter until we become just like Jesus. In other words, Jesus' resurrection is taking place in us through the Holy Spirit, and we're being transformed. That's the word that's used there. It's the same word used for Jesus on the mountain when He was transfigured. The Greek word is metamorphosis. I know you've heard it. We are being transformed on the inside. And when this physical body drops away, we will be glorious beings. Paul says we will shine like the universe, like the stars in the universe. In Philippians 3, he says we await a Savior from heaven who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. He's going to make us Glorious. C.S. Lewis says, if you could see yourself as you really are in the spirit realm, you would want to fall down and worship yourself. 
we are glorious beings. Did you know that Jesus calls us gods with a small g? Have you read John 10 lately? He says the scripture cannot be broken. We are gods, but we will die like men. God's made us into beings very much like his son. 1 John 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called sons of God. And that is what we are. When he appears, we will be like him. But we will see him as he is. If you have this hope in you of being like Jesus, verse 3 says, then you must purify yourself even as he is pure. Is this practical? I'd say so. Let's pray together. Father, you've given us everything we need for life and for godliness. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your life inside us, transforming us to be like him. We thank you that life is stronger than death. And Father, I pray for each person here that will be aware of what our future holds, that we will be like you. We long for that. Father, help us to love you and to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen.